on um, what we're reading. Okay, In Exodus chapter 32, this is roughly three months, give or take, after the exodus from Egypt. So about three months after the Israelites had seen the parting of the Red Sea, they had seen the plagues in Egypt, uh, they had seen manna fall from heaven, they are at the foot of the mountain of Sinai, the mountain of God, and what do they do? Moses goes up to the mountain, he receives the law, and the people are there at the base of the mountain, and they grow restless. They grow weary of waiting, and they fall back into idolatry. The question that's always plagued me, and it seems to plague a lot of people, is why, after seeing manna from heaven, after seeing the freedom from Egypt, after seeing the miracles and the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, would the people and Aaron, who is the first high priest of God, why would they construct an idol? Why would they do that? To understand that, that cycle that repeats throughout the Old Testament, God will redeem the people, Israel will eventually fall into idolatry, they will be punished for their sins, sometimes immediately, sometimes down the road, as the prophets will tell us, uh, with exile or, or other types of uh, invasion from outside forces. Israel will repent, either at the hand or the, uh, from the word of the prophet uh, or through a series of circumstances. And then they will be redeemed. God will redeem them, bring them back to the land, restore them in the land, and then it repeats. That cycle repeats all throughout the books of the book of Judges. It repeats all throughout the, book of the, the books of the prophets. To understand why that happens, we have to understand the world in which Israel existed, the world in which the people of God were living at the time. And the name of that world is, is how we call it, is the ancient Near East. Now, what is that? What is that word? What does that mean? And if you look on your uh, notes there, if you had the opportunity to pick one of those up, uh, the ancient Near East, uh, as we refer to it today, when we talk about it today, it's a, it's a region of the world that roughly corresponds to the areas of Mesopotamia, that's modern-day Iraq and Syria, Anatolia, that's modern-day Turkey, the Levant, which comprises the, some of the, the nation of Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Palestine, and Jordan, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and ancient Egypt. What do we mean time-wise about the ancient Near East? What time period are we talking about? It's roughly from the Sumerian period, the Sumerian age, which was about the 6th millennia BCE, to the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century before Christ. That's the time period in the region of the world we're talking about. Okay, This is the time period in the region of the world where Israel is becoming a nation. It's becoming the people of God. Okay, They are taken into captivity in ancient Egypt. They make their way from Egypt uh, through the Levant into modern-day Israel and Palestine. And then that is where the kingdom grows. That is where it flourishes. That's where the kingdom of David is built, the kingdom and te the temple of Solomon, and eventually they are then overrun by their neighbors and cast out into, uh, into exile. So, that is the geographical and time setting 
for what we're going to talk about. And what we're going to talk about specifically is a way in which the people of this time period, the people of this world, understood their gods and their gods' interaction with the world. That's not very far stretched to say that these people, that is, that these nations, this, this time period and this place where Israel existed, the people around them were not monotheists. They, they did not believe in one God. They were polytheists. They believed in a, a multitude of gods, several different and various gods. And that is the world, that's the, the context where God comes to Abraham and comes to the people of Israel and he begins to reveal himself. It's not a people that are prepared for a God that will say there is only one God and Yahweh is his name. It is a people that are, that are used to having a whole plenitude of different deities with which they can worship. A whole plenitude of different types of cultic rites and rituals that they can go to and, and, and participate in. Not one set of ways for which you worship God. Not one temple, but many temples. This is not what they're used to. This is not what they're expecting. So to understand that, we want to talk about a couple of different things today in regards to this worldview. And a worldview is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a way of understanding how it's, it's a way of interpreting the, the data that we're getting from the world in which we live. We want to talk about three things in particular. We're going to talk about what creation looked like to the ancient peoples of the world. We're going to talk about the difference between this idea of continuity and transcendence, or what I'm terming the mythical versus the biblical perspective of God. And then lastly... We're going to uh, discuss very briefly uh, what our relationship to deity is, or what our relationship to the gods, or in this particular case, God, is. So let's talk about creation for a moment. And we talked a little bit about this previously, I believe, but um, I want to give you a different perspective. Not a perspective that I expect that you to resonate with, and it's certainly not something that we as Christians believe, but this is the perspective of creation from the, uh, from the eyes and maybe the ears and mouth of someone who would be living in the ancient Near East around the time of the nation of Israel as they're being progressively led through this understanding of who Yahweh is. And for sake of ease, while when we refer to the God of the Bible, we're going to try to refer to Him as Yahweh so as to not be confused with gods and God and, and all the uppercase and lowercase. We're going to try to make it as, as easy as we can, but if I lose you anywhere, please stop me. All right? So we're going to talk about creation for a minute. What, in what way did the ancient people of the ancient Near East, did they understand the world to come into existence? And there's two fundamental principles that are universally accepted to be present at the time of creation, at least from an ancient Near Eastern perspective. And that is the conditions of order and, or excuse me, the, the precosmic condition of undifferentiated, unrefined, uh, primordial deep water. Okay, that, that is something that virtually every creation story, from Babylonian to Sumerian, uh, throughout the ancient Near East, with the exception of, to a certain extent, the biblical narrative, all contain. 
The state of the world prior to the activity of the gods was chaotic. It was this primordial, undifferentiated chaos that exists. And then, at some point, there is activity from the gods to bring order out of that chaos. Sounds very familiar to what we might read in Genesis 1. The Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the face of the deep, and then He speaks creation into existence. But the difference is that in these other myths, and we are going to call them myths for the sake of brevity, the difference being that the activity of the gods of the pagan peoples of the ancient Near East, in contrast to Israel, there is typically some type of conflict involved. There's some type of physical activity by the gods that is involved with the creation of the world. Whereas in the Bible, God simply speaks, Yahweh speaks, and things occur. For example, the Babylonian creation epic called the Enuma Elish, it's roughly from around the 18th to the 16th century uh, before Christ, um, it tells the tale of Marduk and Tiamat and the way in which the world is created and the way that it's created is that Marduk slew Tiamat, killed him, and then used her body to actually create the world. And that is a typical way in which the ancient peoples would have understood creation to have come into being. There is a conflict, and then out of that conflict there is something new. There is chaos, and then there is order. The interesting thing is that the gods in these stories, their, their, their pre-creation condition, their, the, the way in which they exist before physical creation comes into being is not really clear. There's not really any, any real discussion about where these gods exist outside of the created world in which they inhabit. We'll get to the, we'll, more on that in a minute. Uh, in Egyptian mythology, Amun exists before the world is created, but himself emerges from the primordial deep. So there's something that pre-exists, something that exists before the gods that they then come out of, and then they create the world in which we live. And that's something that's common in virtually every other myth of creation in the ancient Near East, again, with the exception of the Bible. Uh, John Walton, in his fantastic book, I uh, believe I gave you a reference there. It should be the, uh, either the, bi, the uh, IB, uh, bleh, IVP Bible Commentary and Bible Backgrounds or um, the uh, Understanding the Bible in its Cultural Context. Uh, he says this, he says, Ancient sources are unanimous, meaning every extant source that we have for every people that we know existed are unanimous. The precosmic con condition included both water and darkness. There is no such thing as a God existing outside of some type of physical reality. And the focus of these myths, the focus of these stories, okay, these ancient creation stories, seems to be not so much as creating or speaking into existence or making things out of nothing, which was what we're used to when we read our creation story, it seems to be 
rather focused on naming and differentiation. It seems to be on classification rather than material creation. Okay, and uh, the ancient world, again, according to John Walton, is is function oriented. Something only has purpose; it only has existence if it has something for a function for which it is uh, uh, to fulfill. Um, if the ontology of that ancient world, the the beingness of that ancient world, is function oriented, then to create something in the ancient world would mean simply to give it a function or a role within an ordered cosmos. So the gods bring order out of the chaos, they bring order from the primordial deeps, they differentiate the world, and then they name and they give purpose, and that is the reason for their existence. Also common is that the world in these ancient myths, in these ancient stories, the world is seen in religious or what we're going to call cultic terms. And the temple, the place, the, the place of worship, is seen as a, a microcosmos. It's seen as a small version of a larger world. Uh, the Akkadian myth, in particular, um, talks about the connection between the temple and the cosmos. Uh, it, and it's, a, it's a poem. It's an epic creation poem. Uh, it's written in the language of cosmic creation. There's no differentiation, there's no distinction between the creation of a God's temple and the creation of the world. Contrast that to Genesis, where the world is not Yahweh's temple. Yahweh doesn't create the world to reside in the world, but rather is symbolically his sovereign place of rule or his throne. The Sabbath rest, when, when we read about the Sabbath rest on, on the seventh day of creation, that is not a rest in the terms of sleeping or recuperating from exerting yourself. That is a, a resting upon creation, symbolically taking up his place as cosmic king of all creation. But he doesn't reside there. He simply takes ownership and responsibility for. That is what is meant there, not something akin to what Israel's neighbors would have understood as far as what happens when a god rests upon a temple. Because in that myth, in that particular understanding, that god is then tied geographically and geopolitically to that temple. We'll get to that in a minute. All right. Uh, Next, we want to turn to uh, the differentiation between continuity and transcendence, or what it means, what these words mean. As I said, I have kind of classified this as the difference between the mythical and the biblical understanding of, uh, of the world. And uh, I want to spend a few minutes talking about what we mean by the word myth and mythology. <clears throat> if by myth, what we mean is falsehood, okay, a myth that we tell, the myth of some magical woodland creature that brings us uh, good luck, or leprechauns at the end of a rainbow, or a fat jolly guy in a red suit who might bring us presents. If that's what we mean by myth and by falsehood, then we can't call the Bible or anything that we read in terms of the creation account or anything else a myth. Number one, the Bible clearly claims to be speaking historically in certain aspects. Not all the time, 
But in certain places and in certain aspects, it certainly at least claims itself to be history. Whether or not it is, that is a, a, another question. We, can, we don't want to deal with that today. But we can't just simply write it off as myth because myth typically doesn't claim to be historical. Now again, I'm, I'm using very broad, generalized terms here, but for the most part, what we mean by myth is something that is, is, is not historical. Uh, and the Bible certainly does speak in mythic terms in some points. It talks about in the book of Job, where God, after Job laments for the time that he laments and God finally comes to him, he talks about who divided the deeps, who named, who created the Leviathan. These are mythic terms. That doesn't mean that it's not true, but those are mythical creatures that, that God is referring to. When he is speaking to Job in, in, the, in the book of Job, uh, that is what he is talking about. He's using the understanding that Job would have had about the world in which he lived, again, colored by this understanding of mythical, uh, 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 excuse me, colored by this understanding of a, a, a cosmos that is riddled with all different types of gods and beings. He's using that understanding to communicate a profound truth that I am the God that created everything you see around you, even those things that don't really exist, but you believe do for some inexplicable reason. That's one way of understanding that. So, if by myth we mean falsehood, we can apply that term to the Bible. If by myth we mean something like what C.S. Lewis meant, and again, I, I think this is what he was talking about, that the, the biblical description of the world, the cosmic origin of the world is clearly based in a historical context with specific examples and similar themes, but it contains the truth of what God wanted to communicate to Moses because it is inspired by him and it is revealed to him, then I think we hit closer to the mark of what myth might actually mean if we apply it to the Bible, but I don't think that's exactly correct. I think that description even leaves something to be desired. Mythology, then, in that understanding, it, it could be something about something in the sense of a grouping of fantastical stories. Again, fantastic, but not impossible. Fantastic, but not necessarily mythical in the sense of not being real. Grounded in the truth, guided by revelation, which may be historically colored by the environment in which the people writing grew up in but nonetheless written to convey the truth of God's revelation. There's a lot packed in there, so let me unpack it for a minute. By mythology, and we can probably refer to our creation story as creation mythology in that very limited sense, that it is a grouping of stories grounded in the truth, guided by God's revelation, but still contains the elements that are common to be found based on the time period in which it was written. So it would not be uncommon for the writer of the book of Genesis to talk about the differentiation between the deeps and the land. It wouldn't be uncommon for the, for the writer of the, of the creation story to talk about God speaking in the way that he does. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just simply means that whatever was revealed 
to the writer about the way in which God ordered the cosmos and created it out of nothing, whatever that revelation was, that the, the vehicle that was used by which to communicate that truth is still grounded in a historical context. It's still grounded and colored by the, the world in which that person lived. That's all we're saying. So how does the biblical understanding of God different? How is it different than the ancient pagan understanding of God? The most common and the most prevalent is the idea of continuity. Continuity believes or asserts that all things are continuous with each other. All things are continuous with each other. Every aspect of what we would call the natural world was associated with some deity in the ancient Near East. And John Walton, again, in that that fantastic book, even goes on to say that if we were to try to communicate the idea of a purely natural world in a scientific term to an ancient mind, they would have no idea what we were talking about because there is no differentiation between the natural and the supernatural. They are one and the same. Nothing about the world was, as we would say, quote-unquote, natural in that sense. The gods uh, that surrounded the nation of Israel, there are, are several characteristics that they, that they have. They are anthropomorphic. They are like man in their nature, their character, and their personality. Meaning they act like us, they look like us, and they have the same types of character we do, both good and bad. Character, flaw, vices, and virtues. As I said, uh, they are both geographically and geopolitically centralized. They are localized where their temple resides and where they are worshipped. If you have your scripture open and you want to flip with me, flip over to Psalm 121. Yes, 121. If you don't have it, it's okay. It's a very familiar psalm. It's a song of ascent. Uh, It says... I lift my eyes up to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's one and two. Out to the untrained, uninformed eye, that looks to be just, well, what's going on there? The writer of the psalm is, what is he doing? He's looking up into the hills and he is gazing upon the majesty of Yahweh's creation and he is understanding that his help comes from God. That's not what's happening. At the time of the writing of that psalm, it would not have been uncommon as you are making your trek through the wilderness up to Jerusalem, which is an elevated place, to see on the hillsides around the city the, the shrines and the temples and the sacrificial places to various other gods that are not Yahweh. So as this writer is walking up to the Jerusalem, what is he seeing? He's not looking up into the sky and seeing this beautiful, majestic creation. He is seeing a landscape of paganism around the city of God. And he's looking at these things and saying, this is not where my help comes from. My help comes from God. As he's looking up, he's ascending into the city. That's why it's a song of ascent. They are located in a place. The gods are located in a place wherever their temple resides. They are bound to the cosmos. They, are, they operate only within the physical world and only with power over their individual physical characteristics. Rain, water, crops, fertility, whatever that may be. 
Whatever they were the god of, that is the power that they have. That's why magic could function in the ancient Near East, or they believed that it could. You could do the right thing, say the right thing, do the little rain dance, whatever. That's where that comes from. Because if we please the god, the god of rain, he will bring rain. If we don't please him, he won't bring rain. The gods were procreative. They could be born and they could have children. That is why in the Bible, contrasting that, contrasting that view to the Bible, there is a much higher view of human sexuality than in the ancient Near East. Particularly after the book of Deuteronomy is written. The gods were fallible. They could make mistakes. They could do the wrong thing. They could even act capriciously. They could do things out of avarice or greed or vengeance. They were emotional. They were susceptible to the same range of human emotion that you and I are susceptible to. They engaged in a daily routine. They had to eat. They had to sleep. They had jobs. They had desires. They had cravings. They had needs. And they functioned in communities. They had families. They had societies. Some of them even participated in government. So you're getting this picture of what these people understood these gods to be. Just elevated versions of themselves. And there's one for the sun, and there's one for the moon, and there's one for the rain, and there's one for the crops, and there's one that I pray to if I want my neighbor to get sick and there's one that I pray to if I want my wife to get pregnant or if I want my kids to do well or if I want the war to go well or whatever. But they were just like us. Just enhanced, mythified versions of people. You contrast that to the way in which God is described in the Bible the def- or of uh, the God who is transcendent. He is the creator of the world but he is not a part of the world. He's radically other than the world. He's completely separate, but operative in the world. He works, but is not able to be controlled in the world in which he operates. That's why the prohibition for magic is so strong, uh, particularly, in the again, in the book of Deuteronomy. Because trying to divine and trying to manipulate God in order to um, to make him do things that's how the pagans functioned that's not how the people of God function um, in Deuteronomy 18 t- excuse me that's 16 uh, 1810 says there shall be found among you if uh, there shall be there shall not be excuse me shall not be found among you anyone who burns son or his daughter is an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer, a charmer, a medium, a wizard, a necromancer, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations to the Lord, your God is driving them out before you. That is mild compared to what we would see from the prohibitions in things like Leviticus or Ezekiel where it says they shall not be suffered to live. The prohibition for magic is extremely strong in the Bible. And the reason for that is because you cannot control a God that is not a part of the physical world. 
You cannot manipulate a God who is completely, radically other than the world in which you inhabit. You are completely and utterly reliant on His graciousness, upon His mercy. And you are the subject of His vengeance and His wrath should you cross Him. So we have, as I said, God is completely different, radically other, cannot be controlled, cannot be bound by the world. Which means that human activity, both religious and civic, are done and impact the people who do them. But they cannot make God do anything. This is the common misconception of the prophets. The prophets go to the people of Israel and they say, if you don't repent, then X, Y, and Z will happen. The Babylonians will come, the Persians, uh, whomever else. You will suffer famines, you will suffer plagues, whatever the case may be. When Jonah goes to the Ninevites, if you don't repent, God will bring fire and brimstone upon the city and he will destroy the city. The The act of repentance is not what causes God to be either merciful or vengeance. Because you can't manipulate a God that's not bound to the cosmos. The prophets are not telling you, if you want to change God's mind, you need to repent. That's not what he's telling them. He's telling you, if you continue in the ways in which you're doing now, this is the inevitable result of continuing to operate in a way that completely neglects the word of God. The prophets in particular to the nation of Israel during the time of the captivities are just simply reading the tea leaves of the geopolitical situation around them. They see these nations that are rising up, that are becoming strong, that are warlike and warmongering, and they're saying, listen, if we don't have the protection of Yahweh, we're going to get swept up with everybody else that's getting swept up. God is just telling us what we already know, but we're apparently too stupid to see that if we continue, we're going to be another blip on the page of history, just like all the other nations that the Babylonians and the Persians had con- and, the, and the Romans had conquered. So human activity and religious uh, observance is, is ethically driven. It's morally driven. It's not, uh, it's not used in a way to manipulate God to, to provide us succor or to, to give us uh, to, to, to give us preferential treatment. Those, those religious observance, those, those civic observance, those morals that we, that we find in the Bible, those ethical commands we find are for our own benefit, not to manipulate God to, to give us favor. And our human sexuality is reserved for familiar, familial rather than cultic use. That is a vast contrast between the ancient world that the Israelites grew up in. That is a vast difference because you only worshipped and sacrificed at the temple if you needed something. You only tried to please the gods if you needed to please the gods because you didn't want to draw their ire, you didn't want to make them mad because they might curse you or they might curse your crops or your livestock. That means that our relationship to, excuse me, that, that means that, that humanity's relationship to the gods or to deity in the ancient Near East is very, very different than our relationship to God in the Bible. 
Because the gods of the ancient Near East have needs just like we have needs. And, huma- and humans are created to serve those gods. Those needs have to be met. But the god of the crop can't make it rain. He can't, he can't harvest himself, so we need someone to harvest for him. And if he's not going to bring, bring about a harvest, oh, we must sacrifice, he must be angry. The god must be hungry. We need to feed him. We need to, to do certain rituals to make him happy. We need to distract him. And he needs to not pay attention to whatever he's paying attention to so that the, the rain will come. So he'll just, it'll just happen. There, there are other things there, but for the sake of the children that are still in the room, we won't talk about them. Um, and if they're not met, they might punish those people. Those people might be punished. So like I said, cultic worship, it served both personal as well as civic needs. It gave some semblance of meaning to a meaningless life. Because again, if this is all that it is, if, 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 the, if, the, if the eternal and the imminent are both one and the same, if the physical and the supernatural are just one part of the same whole, then there is no real meaning to existence other than just slogging through your day and hoping that you don't get cursed or you don't come across you know, a dead black cat that's going to curse you for seven years. That's where all of that comes from. It's this idea of continuity, this idea that the physical and the spiritual are one and the same and whatever happens in the spiritual happens in the physical and vice versa. It's where this idea of fate comes from. If you're fated in this, in this world, it's something to be heroically resisted. Think of, think of Achilles. Okay? Achilles knows what's going to happen to him, but he fights against fate. He ultimately fails because you can't fight fate. You heroically resist. You valiantly do what you can in the face of your fate, and yet at the end of the day, fate still takes you. It can't be thwarted. It can't be changed. That's the world these people lived in. Cultic worship allowed civic authorities the ability to control the people, to control the populace, to provide necessary distraction from a drudge of a difficult existence or from the very warlike nature of the nations that surround them. What better way to, to distract a bunch of people from the fact that you're raping and pillaging the, uh, other nations than to set up a coliseum and... Let's let's have some games. Let's have some chariot races. Let's let's have some music. And you know, you know, we might we might execute some political dissidents along the way, but we'll do that during lunchtime because that's what the Romans would do. Okay, the Col- when the Colosseum was erected, what they would do is they would bring everybody in. They would do all the really fun stuff first, and then you would leave to go eat, and then they would bring in the political prisoners to be executed or to fight the lions or the gladiator battles, whatever that may be. And then everybody gets to come back, and then they come back to this. This horror show provides a necessary distraction from the very warlike nature of your nation if you can just distract everybody with pleasantries or with cultic dance and cultic worship and all of the attendant pleasures that might come with that experience. Uh, They often served both personal and so these practices often serve both personal and selfish needs. Um, Like I said, creating issues or exacting vengeance on an enemy. Crop growth, health, vitality, monetary gain. All of these would be reasons why you might go to the temple. Contrast that understanding of how, human, uh, of how humanity relates to the gods 
in the ancient Near East to the way in which we relate to the gods in the Bible. Excuse me, not to the gods, to Yahweh in the Bible. <coughs> Excuse me. Humans are made in God's image. Dominion, we have dominion but not control over the natural world. That's very different. Dominion over, stewardship of, is not the same thing as control. Because again, when we talk about being able to control the natural world, that lends itself to magic, that lends itself to divination, that lends itself to us trying to manipulate and control Yahweh. That doesn't happen. Our role as stewards of God's creation is our central role in creation. We are put upon this earth to care for God's creation. Not because He needs us to in a visceral way, but because that is the purpose for which we were created. To be stewards of His creation and to bring glory to His name. Freedom and responsibility, then, are two divine commands. Religious practice, then, serves both personal needs and civic needs. But it's based on God's character rather than the capricious whim of whatever deity we happen to have run afoul of. Our freedom and responsibility to obey God's commands comes from His desire to do good because of His nature. And we are ultimately the ones that are the vehicles, we are the ones driving the vehicles of our destinies. And it depends upon our reliance upon God. We are the ones that make the decisions about whether we follow God or whether we choose to ignore Him. We can follow those commands, we can follow those directives, and our lives can be fruitful or they can spiral into the chaos that was so, so common in the ancient world. A very stark contrast between the way in which Israel's neighbors understood deity and the gods and Israel's understanding of Yahweh. Yes, they didn't always operate that way. They weren't always the ones that were the exemplar, but that's the picture of, of, of God that we are laid with, that is laid out before us in the Bible. So what do we then want to take away from that? We need to understand three things very quickly, and then I'll, I'll close. We need to understand the difficulty of being unique in a homogenous world. Israel is a unique nation among the nations of its, uh, uh, that surround it. It is uncommon. Monotheism is not the norm. Polytheism, many gods, multiple gods, that is the norm for Israel's neighbors. We need to understand that if we're going to understand why that cycle of, of uh, falling into sin, falling into idolatry, repentance, restoration. We need to understand that Israel is unique amongst its neighbors. It's, uh, the, the, the religion of Yahweh is the exception. It is not the norm. We need to recognize the progressive nature of God's dealing with Israel's understanding of religion. God doesn't just dump everything into Abraham's lap. He doesn't just give him the whole shebang. He doesn't just give him everything right at the beginning. He works with what he has and helps him to understand more as time progresses. And as the generations go we see more and more and more of who God is in, real, in contradistinction to who these other gods might be. And God uses and repurposes aspects of what Israel knows and understands and repurposes them 
in a way that is specifically monotheistic. Okay? When we read other accounts of things like the covenants, it is not unusual for a covenant to be created in the ancient Near East. In fact, the covenants that we have that God makes with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with David, those covenants are very similar to Hittite suzerain covenants. Very, the wording is very similar. Not because God, the, 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 the religion of, of, of Israel was just a copy and borrowed from other religions, but because God uses what Israel is already familiar with to help them understand. In much the same way that, that we use the dates of things like the winter solstice and Christmas. It's just we're using those things to teach a lesson. We're not borrowing from some other religion, but we're using them in a way to convey a truth. So we need to understand the difficulty of being unique in a homogenous world. We need to recognize the progressive nature of God's dealing with Israel's understanding of religion. We also, and lastly, we remember that our understanding of who God is is based on an Old Testament. Uh, our understanding of who God is in the New Testament is based on our understanding of who God is in the Old. There's not a difference between the two. There's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. We need to understand that that same God, that same Yahweh, is the, is the one that speaks to the people, to Jairus, when his daughter is, is, is lying dead before him. That same God is the God of the Old Testament. We can't understand who God is and how radical Christ truly was unless we understand the God of the Old Testament. And that can be very difficult to do, especially considering what Israel had to put up with and what we have, what we have to see and what we continue to see uh, when we go back there. Um, all right. 